Thanks be to God. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mac Johnson. Uh, I've had the pleasure of growing up at Sunnybrook Christian Church, and now I have the unique opportunity, along with my wife Olivia and my daughter Heidi, uh, to serve on the global church's behalf, but even more specifically, on Sunnybrook's behalf in another part of the world uh, where we preach the gospel and we love people. Uh, and we are currently living in the city of Piotrkov, Poland, and uh, we spend virtually all of our time uh, sharing the gospel, uh, teaching English for free, doing basically anything that we can uh, to share the love of Christ so that we can gain a hearing. And we know that God will uh, bring fruitful uh, result of our labor. Uh, that's just a little bit uh, about what's going on in Poland, but let's focus a little bit more specifically on this Sunday. As you know, we're starting our series in Advent, and the first week of Advent is, I think, rightly focused on the concept or the doctrine of hope. Hope is something that I think this year all of us understand. In fact, I would say that this year most of us have had to rely on our hope a little more than we would like to. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to look at the world right now and to say, wow, like, is this, is this actually happening? I am one to sometimes fall into the idea that the world should be, should be getting better. It should be moving in a positive direction. Uh, just all the things that we can do now, the technology that we have, the lives that literally that we can save, the, the social uh, dynamics of, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there are many, many people around the Western world who are very focused on the down and out. And, you know, we understand sometimes these ideas of, of those who are on the bottom can get confusing and, and complicated. But at the very least, isn't the concept that people are actually looking out for those, at least that they believe to be on the bottom of society, they believe that we should fight for them. And I think that sentiment, that sentiment seems to be relatively new. And so we kind of wish and we kind of hope that the world is going in a positive direction. And then a year like 2020 happens and all of us just get whopped. It feels like this whole year stopped in March. And somebody just pressed pause on life. And I remember sitting in my apartment overlooking a city completely empty. Streets filled with nothing but concrete. No cars, no pedestrians, no one's going anywhere. And I remember just looking out of my apartment window over the city that we live in and thinking, wow, people need hope. And hope is something that I think everybody has. The world isn't new in terms of having to put your hope in something. There are those who uh, disagree with our Christian sentiment of hope. There are some who believe that it's just a crutch. It's just something that weak people need. And to be honest, I don't disagree. Hope is, to use their term, it is a crutch. But I've learned through at least my 25 years of life that I am, uh, I am somewhat of a cripple. I cannot 
walk through life without hope. And so the question is, well, what are we putting our hope in? And I think as Christians, we have at least a concept of what we believe the right answer should be. And we have, I guess, something like a Christian hope. And then we want to say, well, then there's like worldly hope and the things that the rest of the world believes in and the things that they hope for. And when we look at those two things, we say, well, our Christian hope is the only kind of hope that sustains. Our Christian hope is the only kind of hope that actually works. And I think in many cases that is absolutely true. Our Christian hope is entirely unique. But on the other hand, I know that there are people who live their lives in their version of hope. And oftentimes, it typically takes the shape or form of just something of a better future. Just some kind of next day in which, as I said before, the world is moving in a positive direction. That's what everybody seems to want. So that's kind of what hope is about. Non-Christians, they have hope. They hope in a better tomorrow. They hope that their sacrifices in terms of how much they work and the things that they do during their lifetime, that that will make them feel fulfilled and satisfied. And there is a Christian hope, at least purely speaking, that is something that we hold on to, we anchor ourselves in, we lean on as our crutch. But then in the end, when we really get down to it, the way that that hope works itself into our life is really... Not much too different than the hope that non-believers carry around, that if we just do the right things and if we just say the right words and we make the right sacrifices with how much we're in the office or how much we invest in our kids, that we will get, that we will get a better future. It's a complicated thing, hope. So here's the question. What purpose does hope serve? Now, this is the first question I want to deal with. I'm going to walk through three questions, and this is number one. And the question isn't so much about what hope is, but what does it do? What does it do for us to be a people who have hope? Uh, I, I remember uh, being a kid and, you know, being around the high school age and hoping for my next five years, right? You put these little goals in your mind, and you kind of make them these, these punctuated moments in which my own personal goals will be fulfilled, at least as long as I do the right things and say the right words and make the proper sacrifices. And we put these little hopes in our lives. And it's common. I mean, we all do this. Every year, we kind of go through the seasons of working hard, and then in the year, we have a punctuated moment of our hope for rest. We call this vacation. Uh, we have these punctuated moments where we intentionally look forward to something that will hopefully make all the work worthwhile. I remember, like I said, being in high school and having these hopes of the five years. I remember even as like a 16-year-old kid, I really wanted to be married within like five years of graduating. Now, luckily, I was the kind of person who set my mind to that, found an amazing girl, and I did achieve that particular hope. But this is the kind of thing that we just kind of put out into the near future. And this is typically how people live. They put some moment of hope in the near future that it's something that they kind of work towards, they kind of gear their life towards, and then they hope that when that hope is 
actualized that it satisfies. And so I would say to those who are critics of the Christian hope, I would say that I would be a critic of all hope. That all hope is a crutch. That all hope really is a leaning, a leaning on some kind of satisfying moment where everything that we've gone through just pays off. And then we don't have to think about, we don't have to worry about all of the difficulty and the friction that occurs in this life. And so here, here's the answer. Here's what hope does for us. Hope gives, uh, gives people the perspective that they need in order to make sense of their present circumstances. It gives them the perspective that they need in order to make sense of present circumstances. I'm sure that you've heard something like this about our current COVID crisis or about uh, any of the issues that are going on in the world. We hope for the better future. We hope that the present circumstances aren't an indication of where the world is going. We hope that the things that we're wrestling with now, the friction that we feel in our marriages, the friction that we feel with our kids, the friction that we feel with our finances, the discomfort that we have in our jobs, we hope that the discomfort will pave a way for the hope. And that when the hope is actualized, when the hope is realized, that it will all pay off. And so it is almost like, in light of whatever future hope people have, they read the present circumstance. And that's true. I think that's true across the board, Christian, non-Christian, believer, unbeliever. That's what hope is. And the question is now, what is the Christian hope? What is the Christian hope? Because as Christians, we have to be biblically informed. We have to have God-given answers to normal human questions. And we should expect that the world will have some version of an answer to our questions. And we look to Scripture as the authority for life, and we say, what does God have to say about hope? And hope in the New Testament is a beautiful, complicated issue. Uh, I want to turn your attention, if you have your Bibles with you there, uh, either on the couch, at the table, in bed, wherever you might be watching this. If you would, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be starting this first section uh, in verse 19. We'll go 19 through 23. Uh, and I'll just begin reading. And this is Paul writing to a relatively confused church in a difficult time. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we above all people are to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in the same way also in Christ shall man be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ is the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ." 
So there it is. There's your hope. As a Christian, our hope, the thing that we put in the future and sometimes not in the too far future for some Christians, we, we put this punctuated moment in which we anchor our hope to be the resurrection of our physical bodies and the healing of our world. And this isn't an abstract idea, actually. I know some people want to lean a little bit more away from the original idea of the concept of a resurrection. Uh, unfortunately for those, the word in virtually every instance, except namely one in which we don't have time to talk about today, the word for resurrection always, except for this one instance, means a physical, bodily bringing to life of that which was dead. Every time, not just in the Bible, in other literature too, resurrection means the reinvigoration of a dead body. And this is what we hope for as Christians. And you might say, well, that sounds kind of weird. Why would we hope for just the resurrection of a dead body? It sounds so old. It sounds so archaic. It sounds so, I don't know, like magical, as if somehow it's just it's just like God sprinkling some, some fairy dust on the ground and then people kind of pop up and we can't picture what they look like. We can't, can't quite get a grasp on what it all means. And it's sort of wrapped in this vague language. It's something that, that when you spend too much time on, you get a little crazy and you don't spend enough time on, you don't really understand it. But this is it. Like this is the goal. I, I, I want to remind you, we're going into Christmas and Christmas was the waiting, the people were anticipating the birth of a Messiah, the birth of a king, a warrior king, a king who would come and who would conquer, a king who would come and would liberate, a king who would come and clear out any of the friction in life. And that's what they waited for. And when Jesus came bodily, he didn't come as spirit. John makes very clear. He put footprints in the sand. He ate fish. He was a real person. He touched. He healed. He began to ease the friction. And Jesus made it very clear that at his coming, he would begin to untie the binding of death and sin on our world and on our lives and in our hearts. He was going to undo these things. And the ancient audience they believed that at the coming of this Messiah, there would also be a permanent, immediate unbinding of all friction. And Jesus so often has to clarify the things that we have made cloudy. Jesus says, hold on, wait a second. Yes, I have come to unbind. Yes, I have come to ease the friction. But it might not happen in the way. It might not happen in the manner in which you expect. Uh, Jesus has a moment with the disciples. Often when he talks about the kingdom, people really want to know, like, can I touch it? How can I see it? When I see it, will I know it? If I, if I walk too fast into it, will I bounce off? And Jesus, you, you know this, even when he talks to Pilate, he, he, he restates an idea he's already said to the disciples. He says, listen, like the kingdom that I'm bringing you have to be a part of the kingdom to see the kingdom. Paul says earlier in Corinthians, uh, and then additionally in another letter, he, he says at the beginning of this particular letter in 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, spiritual things are discerned by spiritual people. 
And that lines right up with what Jesus said. Kingdom people see the kingdom and non-kingdom people don't see the kingdom. And this is kind of what we're left with. We're left with having to balance the tension between Christ's first appearing and the joy that it brought, the assurance of salvation that it gave us, and the work that we have to do until His second coming when He returns. And this is the problem, is that we wait the physical resurrection of our bodies, and in the physical resurrection of our bodies, God promises, then, then, He will undo all friction. He will take away everything that is stained in this world by sin and death. It will be a world, C.S. Lewis talks about it, not a fake world, not a, a, a mystical world, not a world of phantasm and, and fantasy, but a world so real that when you step on the grass, it pierces your foot. That when you look at the colors, it's so vibrant that it just, it, it burns your rods and your cones. A real that is so real that Paul seems to say it will make everything else look as nothing but a shadow. It's that. That is the resurrection. That is the healing of the world. That's what was promised. The prophet Isaiah saw and heard from the Lord that there would one day be a time in which God would take death personified as a character, as a villain against God's people, and God would execute death. And death and all his minions and all of his power over this present world would finally be loosed. It would all be okay again. And this is what Paul says. And I want to encourage you. This is our hope. It is your hope. It is not fantasy. It is not something that you can just walk away from and still hold the Christian doctrines together. If you take away the physical resurrection of our future bodies, you lose the purpose of Christ's coming. Because Christ came and did everything that he did in order that the Father would give him everything. And so out of Christ's faithfulness, the Father looks to the Son, and the Father, think about this, He hands over the kingdom. The Father hands the kingdom to the Son. The Son is putting everything in the world into subjection through the power of the Father, and it's happening right now through the Holy Spirit. This is our hope, the bodily resurrection and the healing of our world. And so here's the question now is when and how will our hope be realized? Uh, Paul answers this question back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off in verse 24. So previously he's just said Christ was the first fruits. He had the resurrected body. So we know that we will have a resurrected body. It's not a symbol. It's not just an idea. It is concrete. It is more real than real. And so Christ has that body, and then at His coming, those who are with Him. And then this is where we'll pick up, verse 24. Then comes the end. When He delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power, for He must reign 
until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And this is what uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke. Paul reiterates, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the Christian hope is the resurrection of our bodies, the healing of our world, and it will happen at Christ's coming. And Christ has made it clear that his coming in this second uh, idea, this, this new parousia, this version of Christ's coming will not be in the same manner in which he came first. But this will be a glorious coming. Uh, this will be a, an arrival in which, the, the, Paul talks about it this way, it's a very strange way. Uh, in uh, in his, one of his letters to Thessalonians, he says, uh, the Lord will come on the clouds. A very, a very typical idea of God's glory arriving on the earth involves the clouds. And there he is, Christ in the heavens, and he descends in the clouds, similar to the way that he ascended. He descends from the clouds, and Paul says, and we go meet him in the air. That's a very strange Strange idea. It almost sounds like we're going to go meet Jesus in the air and then, oh, then we're just going to kind of float around. But no, that's actually not the way it works. See, that particular word in terms of greed is the kind of greeting that you do when you go out to come in. It's, it's the way in which, if you can look later on uh, at another time in John 11, you'll notice Jesus is coming into a city because Lazarus has died. And people go out of the city to meet Jesus. And they didn't go somewhere else. They returned home. And at Jesus' return, Jesus resurrects Lazarus. It's that image. It's, it's almost like the, the actual story has become a pattern for the way in which things will be in the future. When and how will our hope be realized? Our hope will be realized at Christ's appearing. This again, this is not fantasy. This is not wishful thinking. Christian hope isn't based in nothing. It is based in concrete, observed, uh, physical, real witness, real testimony, eyewitness testimony. They saw him. They saw him eat, they saw him go, and the angels say that you will see him return. This is when all of this will happen, and it's perfect that it would be with Christ's descent, Christ's return to this world. There are some who believe uh, that heaven right now, the heaven now, is our hope. The heaven now is a place where we go and we die and we're comforted by Christ's presence, but it is not the resurrection. Think about it this way. Those who are in heaven now with Christ, they still have a hope. They still wait for God to cleanse the earth and to recreate the heavens and the earth in a way in which will be incorruptible. They await this hope. Our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep still wait for their hope to be realized. And in that way, we are still united with those who have fallen asleep because their hope and our hope resides in the same event. 
And it is all about the person of Christ. It is all about who he is and what he's done. And the resurrection and the world that is, will, will be re recreated is a result of how beautiful and magnificent Christ is. And, and now I, I just want to take a couple of moments. Let's just look at ways that we can actually put that hope into real practice. Now, I want to encourage you, let's look at one more text uh, here. Paul uh, explains this idea in a way that I think we should, we should listen to. Here, you can go ahead and look at verse 48 and 49 of 1 Corinthians. Again, we're still in chapter 15. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are from dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as, we have been, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that is Christ. Paul promises this will occur. Paul promises that those who put their hope and their faith in Jesus and his coming, that they will be like Christ in his image in the way in which the Father, this is crazy, in the way in which the Father looks at the Son, He will then someday look at you in your physical body and see Christ. Right now, He looks at us and He still, He can see our flesh and the pieces of our body which have not been cut off yet because we live on this side of the resurrection. Now He sees us through Christ and soon He will see us perfectly bearing the image of Christ. And Paul here says, it's as good as done. So here's what I want to say, that our hope it does three things. Number one, our hope informs our minds of the direction that the world is headed. This is a cognitive process. This is based on knowledge, things you must know. You have to know this. You need to know this because if you don't know this, then there's no way you could believe it. And if you don't believe it, it's not going to work itself out in your life. God has given us Christ and the Spirit of Christ to know the wisdom of Christ. And this is all done by the Holy Spirit who gives us the mind of Christ. It informs our minds the direction the world is headed. Yeah, it looks right now that the world is not going in a good direction. It looks right now that, that we don't know if the future is going to be better than the past. And you know what? I think the world has been going that way the whole time. But we know its end. We anchor our souls in the end. In the end which will bring us joy, an end which will bring an end to our suffering, it is a point in history when all the wrongs will be made right, and C.S. Lewis says, and all the bad things will become untrue. So number one, it informs our minds. Number two, it encourages our hearts. And it encourages our hearts to embrace an immutable promise of the comfort of Christ's embrace. This is head thinking, this will happen. This is heart being told by your head, this will happen. 
And at times, your head and your heart will have a disconnect and you'll have to tell yourself, be encouraged. Do not be discouraged by the difficult things in life. Do not get so caught up in the friction that you set your whole faith on fire and just say, forget it. But like the psalmist, he has to almost lasso his heart and bring it in and say, listen, you will believe in God. You will be filled. You will take courage. That's what our hope does for our hearts. So number one, it informs our minds. Number two, it encourages our hearts. And lastly, number three, our hope involves our hands. It involves our hands to submit to the will of God as though we could do nothing less. Uh, we hear about this kind of concept all the time, uh, a slave to sin, a slave to sin, a slave to sin. Paul says in the same way in which we once gave our members, meaning the parts of our body, gave our members to sin, to serve sin, he says, consider yourself slaves of righteousness. Slaves. I was thinking about this just a few weeks ago. I don't know why I didn't, you know, put this together, but this seems to be the way the Holy Spirit likes to tell me that I, keep, I need to keep thinking and I need to keep growing. But a slave is someone who can do nothing but. Like when we were slaves to sin, we could do nothing but. We were lost in our sinfulness. We were alone in our sinfulness. We were disconnected from God through our sinfulness because we could do nothing but. But now, Paul says, that same kind of thinking no longer pertains to sin. It pertains to righteousness. And I, I think, I think I don't believe that sometimes. I don't believe that I can do nothing but praise God. I don't believe that I can do nothing but worship Him with my hands. And Paul says very clearly, do that. Do that. Imagine you cannot do anything but worship God with your hands. And that literally just means, this is as complicated as I think it ever needs to get, love God and serve those around you. I was telling the high schoolers this uh, the first Sunday that I was back at Sunnybrook. I said, think about the people you're connected with and think about how connected humanity is. This virus started from one location from one person, and it's here in Stillwater, Oklahoma. That same idea is a proof that we are so connected with each other that what you should do as a result of your hope is live a life in which you take care of the people around you Take care of the people around you. It's not that complicated, but sometimes it can get hard. But this is what our hope leads us to do because we believe in the resurrection. We know the world will be healed. We're waiting for Christ to return and we love people the way he loved people until he gets back. And I want to add one final thing to this last part of how it involves your hands. This is something that I've learned in the past couple years as a missionary Still unable to be able to fully proclaim the gospel in the Polish language is very difficult, but there is something that I can do, and it's just give myself in any possible way to show the love of Christ in any means possible. By any means. 
So for me, sometimes that looks like just teaching English to Ukrainian kids who barely know Polish. Like, that's what I have to do. This is my love of Christ. This is my sacrifice. This is, my, this is what I can do for Christ. And I give, a, give of myself in these moments of self-sacrifice, and I say, this serves so that they will know the gospel. And then once they know the gospel, then, then my love, then the effort of my love will be fulfilled. And recently, I, I've had to come to the conclusion that, that no love done in the name of Christ is ever wasted. That it's never wasted. We don't, we don't love people in order to manipulate them in order to believing the gospel. We love people because Christ desires for their resurrection and because Christ has made a way for them to join into this family. Because Christ loves people, we love people. And the Holy Spirit and God are the ones who are going to foster that faith in their hearts. And I know it sometimes it can be difficult when we look at how we love one another, we say, but it's not resulting in their faith. It's not resulting in them coming to Christ. It's not resulting in that maybe right now. But I couldn't tell you all of the names of the people that I've been able to interact with where the work that somebody else has done in their life has come to a climax in which I barely say anything about the gospel and they literally say, I really think I need to be baptized. I talked with, I don't know if Gerhardt will ever hear this, but I talked with a, I talked with a, a man from South Africa and we had one cup of coffee, one cup of coffee. We barely knew each other. We had one cup of coffee. And I just said, you know, I'm a missionary. Uh, I just love people in Poland and I share the gospel. And Gerhard said, yeah, no, I think I need to be baptized. Like, that's crazy. The first sermon or the first lesson that I taught to these high schoolers, use the translator, obviously. I taught a lesson, very simple, Jesus is king. And I taught it from Revelation chapter 1, which nobody likes to hear from Revelation, but I taught it from Revelation chapter 1. And I just said, like, Jesus is king, you can believe it or not. It was very, cl very clear, very simple, nothing crazy, nothing fancy, no manipulation. And we break up into groups, and, the, you know, there's a group of high school girls, and they're, 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 like, all crying. All of them are crying. And I thought, right, like, somebody got broken up with a couple days ago, and it's like, it's still raw. Because what are the chances high schoolers are going to talk about, you know, the lesson that they just talked about? Rarely ever. And this, this, this group of girls, they're crying, and I thought, oh, man, like, I really, I hope that they're okay. I, you know, I don't want anything uh, difficult to be going on in their lives. And afterwards, Patrizia, our, our, our fellow worker in the city, she goes, that girl just gave her life to Christ. This is the first time she had ever connected the dots that Christ's lordship meant that she should be baptized. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. And I could go on. I could, I could list some names and I could tell you some stories that you would be baffled by. And they give me strength. They, they give me courage. And I tell these people, and we talk about hope, this hope that lives on in us. And like I said, that hope involves our hands. It involves doing things. And right now, I... I would like to transition, and we're, we're going to take a look at one very 
concrete way in which our hope is enacted by our hands. Jesus, before He was put on the cross, before He was buried, before He raised from the dead, before He ascended into heaven as the King of all kings, He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to remember me. I want you to participate in the meal. I want you to live out this hope. This hope that is found in me. And so, if you have with you the elements, if you need to take a second, pause the video, and you go grab some bread and some juice, or however you're planning on participating. This is the way in which we remember what Christ has done for us and the concrete way in which we participate in the hope of the body, which we will see with our eyes. So take of the bread, and eat. And this is the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins, the only sacrifice that could ever deal with our real problems. Precious blood should never have been spilled, was done on our behalf so that you and I could participate in this community. We could shed the disease of sin and death. We could represent God to the, to the nations. Take and drink. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a saving kind of God. Father, we cannot wait for our hope in the seeing of your Son at his return and the resurrection and the healing of our world. We cannot wait. But Lord, don't let our hope blind us from the work, but let our hope encourage every part of us to hold on, to stay strong, to have courage, and to work out this salvation. Help us to share that news. Help us to love those around us, those who are hard to love, those who are difficult. Father, we give thanks to you. We love you, we cherish you, we honor you, and we wait for you until one day we don't need hope, until the day that we can look hope in the eyes. We could hug him with our arms and hear his voice at last. Father, we lift up this prayer of the church to you. It's in your son's name we pray and give thanks. Amen.